Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this week's edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton doing some work behind the scenes. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got an interview featuring Simon Dermer. He's the executive chairman and co-founder of Essential Accessibility. He'll join us to discuss the matter of accessibility best practices for retailers as it pertains specifically to e-commerce. We've talked about accessibility in retail stores, physical stores before. Now we're going to talk about it in terms of the digital realm. In news, we'll discuss the expansion plans for a particular off-price retailer. And we'll look ahead to a large beverage acquisition and a spinoff of one retail company being delayed. A reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. I had the delight of visiting a very old JCPenney location. Local folks say dated back to the 1940s. Still operational. None of the outdoor signage has changed. So I highly recommend you check that out on Instagram as we were able to upload photos of that. Additionally, if you enjoy the show, please do give us a rating. Those ratings help others to find us and check us out. We're looking forward to a big 2022 as, again, we enter what seems like yet another year of the Retail Focus podcast, but it's hard to believe we've been doing this for as long as we have. Well, let's kick it off in our news segment. As Big Lots is in the news this week, they reveal their expansion plans in greater detail alongside a larger update of what they expect for the next five to seven years. Now, we knew from prior earnings calls that they were perhaps on the precipice of more sustained growth rather than just opening a handful of net stores each year. This week, we got a much more specific roadmap as to where they feel as though they're headed in terms of growing location count specifically. Now, just a few weeks ago, I happened to see a big lots in Portage, Michigan. This particular location had actually relocated south by about two miles to a newer location. It was interesting. The new store kind of better fits their new operations, if you will, a larger focus on furniture. So there is a larger furniture loading area off to the side of the store than the old location has, and eventually Layton will post pictures of the old Big Lots location, which was very interesting, had kind of a weird, spacey, UFO-looking front to it, if you will. But it appears as though not just relocations are in the cards for Big Lots, such as that one in Portage, but new stores altogether are on the docket for the next several years. As I mentioned, the announcement came as part of an overall long-term outlook released by the company this week. The big headline was their sales goals over the next seven to eight years, where they expect to see sales of $8 billion to $10 billion annually. In case you're wondering how this compares to their current sales, where their past year sales in fiscal 2020, that's the most recent fiscal year for which we have full year numbers, came in at $6.2 billion. So you're looking at an increase of anywhere between 29 to 62%, depending on where they come in on that range. And it is a very large range, but they are looking into the future seven to eight years. And who knows what the future holds? Of course, I don't think many people would have foreseen a pandemic like the one we've had over the last couple of years. So anything could conceivably affect these expansion plans for big lots, affect 
their overall revenue plans. But while the revenue was the headline in many news outlets, we were much more intrigued by their desire to open up approximately 500 net new stores over that same time span. The openings will take place in a metered manner. You've got only 50 or so planned for 2022, but they do expect to scale up after that point. Around 80 new store openings is what they want over the next several years after 2022, and they gave some color to this on an ICR conference call this week. It's not only the how many, but also the where. And they said during this presentation, it'll be a combination of things. First, they said they plan to bolster existing markets they feel are unsaturated by big lots. A good example of this might be that Kalamazoo or Portage metro area store that I spoke of earlier. There's just one store there in Portage in a metro area of nearly 350,000 people. So you can certainly see where there's runway for growth within metro areas currently, such as that particular one, you know, Big Lots, it's not uncommon for them to have saturation of three to four stores in cities of that size. The second thing they want to do with these new store openings is revisit expansion to rural areas and smaller towns. And this is actually kind of a reinstallation of an effort on their part that had stalled somewhat in the recent past. The late 1990s and early 2000s, as an example, you saw many stores installed in markets, especially Midwestern, Great Plains markets, markets in Texas, also markets of less than 20,000 people. These openings were dotted throughout the landscape, only they kind of stalled out later on in the 2000s, and then closures of some of these stores in the last 15 years have also taken place. So they kind of moved away from rural and small markets just a little bit. And when you look at big lots, you know, it's no secret that rural and small markets are generally underserved when it comes to budget furniture. And this is especially the case in the Midwest and Mountain West after the various closures of Shopco hometown stores and Alco stores, both of whom were often the only locations in some of the smaller markets for budget furniture. You had Dollar General, Family Dollar, and Dollar Tree move into some of these markets to kind of backfill the general merchandise retail hole, but they don't really address some of those budget furniture needs. A lot of these towns now have Walmarts and the like, but Big Lots feels as though they're differentiated a bit from what Walmart would offer, especially in terms of even though they offer budget furniture, maybe some of the higher end budget furniture that they're offering, especially with their whole suite of mattresses, recliners, and such larger selection, generally speaking, than you would get at a typical Walmart in one of those towns of, say, 20 to 25,000 people. And additionally, the third thing the company would like to do with these new store openings is explore new metro areas of a decent size. Despite their having over 1,400 stores in 47 states, there are still some metros, some pretty decent-sized metro areas, without a significant big lots presence. And they would like to change that going forward. Now, if they see runway to adding 500 new stores, that is quite a runway indeed. And that's almost five below territory when you're looking at new store openings for budget retailers and the like. Dollar General, of course, is in a field of all its own when it comes to store openings. But after that, you look at Five Below and maybe now Big Lots as a company that's ready to expand with more and more brick-and-mortar stores. Now, as with any release of positive news, 
There was some negative news from Big Lots this past week, and specifically this had to do with sales trends for the company in January, a month that is, of course, still ongoing. Generally, the company has indicated sales in December track towards the higher end of their expectations. That echoes many other retailers, a few of which we discussed in last week's show. But so far, first few weeks of January, they've seen traffic soften. And their company in prepared remarks blamed this on weather and Omicron. Certainly understandable. Poor weather has been widespread in really their core area of the Midwest. But you also have to wonder whether they're seeing softening of demand for home furnishings. We discussed in December two separate projections that noted furniture and home improvement may be softer categories on the whole in 2022. This is actually something categorically we'll discuss a little bit further with Deloitte coming up in next week's episode. But this was the category, home furnishings, that drove a bunch of Big Lots growth. Not all of it, but a bunch of it during the pandemic. And you have to wonder if expected softness there might be curtailing their traffic, might be curtailing their retail sales just a bit. Anyhow, Big Lots decreased their comp expectations on a two-year stack to flat to low single-digit increases for January. So that's a two-year stack. That means if you do the back of the napkin math, negative sales for 2022 as compared to how sales tracked in 2021. One aside also from all of these announcements and their ICR conference appearance, reading between the lines, if they expect 500 new openings, which is an increase of about 34%, to bolster their top line to the 8 billion mark, if it just gets to the 8 billion mark, that would actually suggest slightly falling comps over that time frame. If they manage to get closer to the 10 billion mark in sales after all of these 500 store openings, it would still suggest pretty modest annual comp growth in the neighborhood of 5%. Either way, it kind of suggests that they think they've been able to more or less optimize their current space. Might be one of the reasons why they're seeking growth through new stores rather than seeking growth through comps, through as many renovations as they had been doing in the past. Now, they still expect to continue to renovate stores and optimize stores as need be. But again, opening stores is going to be the focus of their CapEx. And speaking of CapEx, you know, I think it's interesting that this announcement came during the same week that the Wall Street Journal noted expansion plans for a number of retail and food service companies, Darden Brands among them, Costco among them. Costco was big in terms of the headlines this past week. They now expect to open 28 stores in 2022, which was up from their 20 openings in 2021. We kind of previewed that a few weeks ago, said that might end up being the case for Costco. But the article in the Wall Street Journal actually cited S&P Global Ratings, which projects worldwide capex for businesses to increase by 6.1% in 2022 versus 2021. This should, of course, extend to retail as well. Now, this doesn't only mean expansion in brick-and-mortar terms. Probably also means you get some more capex into digital transformation projects, get some more capex into various inventory and supply chain initiatives, so ultimately, we can expect to see a good many retailers reinvesting in their overall concept now that they've weathered what one would think has been probably the better part of the pandemic. As you see vaccination rates ostensibly go up and as you see Omicron, so it's said, at least start to peak in certain metro areas. Well, coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Simon Dermer, 
Once again, the executive chairman and co-founder of Essential Accessibility, they help organizations create inclusive web and mobile product experiences. He's going to join us to discuss accessibility in the digital realm, something we haven't talked about on this show, and how important it is to make your website accessible and where retailers might be missing the boat, thinking they're accessible, but in reality, not being accessible to many populations. In the past, we've discussed the issues surrounding accessibility in physical retail stores and why such issues are important for retailers to face. But now, accessibility for retailers' digital presence is just as important as accessibility in the physical stores. Here to discuss commonly overlooked issues on this front, as well as accessibility best practices for retailers, is Simon Dermer. He's the executive chairman and co-founder of Essential Accessibility, who helps organizations create inclusive web, mobile, and product experiences. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trent. Thank you for having me. Hello to your vast audience. So first, I was wondering if you could tell our vast audience, if you will, a bit more about Essential Accessibility, why the company was founded, and then how you assist organizations in this goal of digital accessibility. Sure. Our company, Essential Accessibility, is all about what's implicit in the name, digital accessibility. It's ensuring that the increasingly pervasive digital experiences offered in any industry context, not just retail, it could be financial services as well, but that the engagement and the CX that is driven at the consumer level, we ensure that it is welcoming and inclusive and that nobody is left behind. So in this increasingly digital world we live in, we have so many experiences that are at the website, mobile app, could be learning management platform, it could be interacting with collateral, digital collateral, PDFs. We're all about empowering organizations in the space to ensure that when they deliver a digital asset, it's done so in an inclusive manner so that no one is left behind. To give you a little bit about the origin of the organization, myself and my co-founders, we came from actually the healthcare space where we were working in a rehabilitative services type setting, taking people who had disabilities, whether from an accident, from a health condition, and we saw the challenges they faced as they tried to be reintegrated into their pre-accident functioning status, returning to their homes, returning to the workforce, or overcoming the barriers that conceivably shut them out of the workforce. And we saw the need for different kinds of technologies and what could be done to address them. Historically, the approach that was taken is what is known as the medical model. It was a legacy approach. So when you think of when you go to a hospital, for example, and they provide you with a wheelchair, if you suddenly require one, if you need to be wheeled into the hospital, if you need crutches because you broke your leg, the expectation there is that when you're discharged from the hospital, you had to go out and you had to buy these assistive technologies yourself to overcome your limitation. And consequently, that made it really challenging for everybody who's out there to get the technologies they need because not everybody who's in a situation where they require it is economically in a position to acquire them at that moment in their lives. So what we democratized was the idea of bringing technologies right to 
the retail environment to ensure that any customer who came to it, whether they were aware of the need for it or not, could avail themselves of these technologies without having to worry about paying for them and test driving them and going down to like a Best Buy to purchase them. So I'm going to give you a brick and mortar analogy, and then I'll translate it to the digital context. So if you think now that you can go to some retailers, I know some Walmart stores, for example, offer motor scooters for the benefit of customers who want to motor around the store. You know, the stores are huge. Your legs can get tired. You may not need a motor scooter in every facet of your life, but hey, it's appreciated in that moment. We did the equivalent of that from a digital perspective. We developed an assistive technology app that retailers could feature so that someone with something as limiting as quadriplegia, full paralysis, where you couldn't type or move a mouse, you could avail yourself of this solution and literally shop with your, the movement of your head, your eyes, your nose, and do everything you need to, to transact without having to use your fingertips or any other dexterity motions, traditional dexterity motions. And that was the founding pillar of our value proposition. Complementary to that, we built out a platform to help developers follow the practices known as the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, WCAG, WCAG, to help them ensure that when they design their digital products and their websites, they're done so in a manner that is effectively disability-friendly. And what that really means is they're interoperable, or another way of putting it, they play nice with the types of technologies that someone with a disability could use. I also wanted to ask you, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but part of the accessibility landscape is compliance. And there are a pretty complex set of standards. I was trying to go through it in terms of researching for this podcast. I felt like I was way into the weeds regarding these regulations that kind of govern digital accessibility and also compatibility with some of the programs that you mentioned. I was curious if you could give us kind of a 30,000 foot view of what these standards look like now, regardless of whether they pertain to a retailer site or any other website that's out there. Sure. So the uninitiated, these standards are a lot of gobbledygook. I mean, they're arcane, they're not easy to understand or interpret, and your head can spin from doing it. So let me simplify what the standards are all about. Ultimately, when you build an asset, you build that website, you want it to be accessible to anybody. So a blind individual, someone with a hearing impairment, someone who can't type, move a mouse, you want them to be able to use the site just like any other user. And so the legacy way of doing this, which is not a convenient or practical way, but it's an effective one, is to literally just get the feedback of people with disabilities as you're building out your assets. And they'll tell you, you know what, I can't see that. The colors aren't sufficiently contrasted. And I can't hear that. You need to include some captioning there. And you know what? I'm having trouble navigating the site with my screen reader. It's not reading the code. And the developer would go, oh, thank you very much for telling me that. I could fix that and make that more user-friendly. That's conceptually, that's what this is all about. It's just making sure that when you do something, you're building it in a way that includes all these people. But in reality, you don't have the luxury of having a room full of people with all different kinds of disabilities giving you that feedback. It's not the most efficient way to do it. So hence, the guidelines are effectively a codification of what you can do tactically, technically, from a coding level standpoint to ensure that that deliverable meets the requirement of being accessible to the user. So it's a whole cookbook that gives you that guidance. 
and it gets very technical and it's development, but it tries in many ways to streamline the elements that can be conveyed directly to developers. But there are other aspects, of course, that are going to be very context specific, more nuanced because, you know, language, aesthetics, they don't lend themselves to cut and dry, black and white solutions. So accessibility, there are some low hanging fruit. There are easy things you can do. There are things you can do through automated approaches and streamlined productive methods, but there are things that can't be done without actual manual testing processes. And what our accessibility as a service platform is all about is giving organizations all the elements they require to ensure that their developers are informed on these aspects and can incorporate them in the most efficient manner possible. Now, as you look throughout the landscape of whether they be e-commerce sites or apps, what are maybe some of the more common pitfalls? I know you mentioned color and color visibility or audio levels. Maybe other issues that you notice on this front, even today for retailers who might be otherwise trying to make their sites accessible. Sure. The low-hanging fruit, the easy stuff that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to fix. You don't have to have incredible resources. We've said color contrast is one example. We've all been to sites where you could have fighter pilot top gun vision and you're going to be struggling to make out what's in the image so that's an example another one is what's known as alt text like when you post an image on a site it's important that there's a descriptor of that image because if a user who's vision impaired has a screen reader coming along and it's reading that there's an image there they have no idea what's in the image and even though there is ai now that is to a certain degree able to interpret elements of that image, they're not able to interpret the context. Sure, there might be a boy throwing a ball in the image, but maybe it's the car crash in the background for the insurance ad that's really what's being conveyed in it. So you want to have like a one-line short descriptor so that blind user's screen reader will be able to read it and they know what is being conveyed in the image. The most common problem, of course, is what you visually see when you're looking at a site is not what a screen reader reads when it's reading the site for someone who's dependent upon it. It's reading the code behind it. And the code, more often than not, does not flow in the same manner as what you're seeing on the UI. And so it's important that websites are coded in a way that the screen reader will follow the bouncing ball in the exact same way that the reader who's interacting with the UI is seeing it as well. So that's the biggest challenge. So someone with a screen reader can go to an airline site and they want to start navigating the site with the view to purchasing the airline ticket and their screen reader is going from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. It's not even going into that click down box. It's impossible to make the transaction. The flow is basically impeded. And so these are some of the common ones. Of course, you know, lacking captioning is an obvious one. That's an easy one to determine. So those are some of the easier examples. But that one I just gave you of coding in a certain way, making sure the navigation is set up in a way that's very disability friendly. That's when things start getting a little more challenging and you need some guidance and resources, knowledge and expertise and feedback to ensure that you get that and you do that right. So I'm curious, many of the things that you mentioned seem to apply to maybe a a desktop or a typical e-commerce site. What are some of the differences that you have to take into account when you're looking at 
maybe the accessibility of mobile applications, because we know retail sales through mobile applications have gone up. Some estimates say as many as 10% of retail sales take place through mobile apps. What are some of the differences there in determining accessibility for mobile apps versus like a desktop site? Generally speaking, they're the same types of issues. The outcomes, it's ensuring that you're coding it at a level that it's interoperable and the experiences are not disrupted. So conceptually, for the sake of a non-technical audience, it's effectively the same thing. It's There's a right way to do this. There's a right way to code it. It factors in the needs of the widest possible audience. And you want to do that from the start. And that goes for responsive designs, mobile apps, and then things like platforms, like learning platforms, where the user is not on a traditional website or on a traditional mobile app, but they're interacting with a platform-based interactive experience. And again, there, it's the same thing. You want to factor in how is an individual engaging with this technology, how we factor their needs into it, and what is the fluidity of that customer experience. All right, so we've talked about some of the areas of opportunity that exist out there, whether it be for retailers or really anyone with a website to ensure that these things are accessible. I wanted to transition now and talk about some of those best practices or some of those examples from retailers or other businesses making their websites accessible. What are, as someone who's worked in this space for quite some time, what are some best practices that you're noticing to ensure that everything is accessible as much as possible on their e-commerce presence? Yeah, I'm going to give you the holistic macro best practices. One, you want to educate everybody in the retail, in your force, your workforce, about the size of this market. Almost 20%, one in five individuals self-identify as having a disability. Everyone needs to take this seriously. Everyone needs to pay attention to it. And if you're not persuaded of the market opportunity, if you're not persuaded of the necessity on the legal compliance dimensions, you should also look at it from the standpoint of your own selfish needs. There's an expression that we all have a disability in the long run. So it's not about you or us or them, it's society. So instill that big market opportunity. Then you want to get the commitment at the top level in the organization to do this so that everyone's aligned. You don't want to just have one splinter group that's at loggerheads with another group that's fighting over real estate on the homepage or resources, and they'd rather see the spend go to Google and not accessibility. Very important to put all those political pieces to bed and sing from the common hymn book. Once you've done all that, from a technical standpoint, it's important to know there's no one single way to achieve accessibility. It's like from a prescriptive standpoint, there are many approaches you can take. You can train people up. You can make use of volunteers at local disability advocacy organizations. You can hire consultants. You can make use of open source technologies, proprietary technologies. So there is no one single way to do it, but there are efficient, critical paths to doing it. And so if you want to talk about the most efficient ways in our experience and in our belief to do it, it's to, number one, don't follow the legacy approaches, which have been shown more often than not to fail. Don't take the view that this is a punctuated, one-off projects, one and done, as they say. Don't take the view that you can cut corners and that even if you do achieve accessibility, that you've arrived and there's no need to worry about it anymore. It's not the same as cutting a curb. Digital content is continually evolving. It's dynamic. 
this is a QA process that doesn't go away. Unless you're firing your digital team because you don't need your websites built and you're not doing any more digital work, then the same thing goes for accessibility. As long as digital is working, accessibility needs to be factored in in real time. So the most efficient way to do this is to incorporate the elements and resources that are required right into the dev process. And that goes for ultimately you want to not only just do it in the dev process, you want to get ahead of it in what we call shift left into the design phase so that when you're embarking on the creation, the architecting, the production of assets, that you're factoring these things and you're not retrofitting down the road and saying, well, why did we go down this path when we should have known from day one these two colors were clashing? They weren't sufficiently contrasted. So you need a whole array of resources to do this effectively. Of course, if you're a giant organization, you can go out and procure them, buy them, and build them all in-house and have a team. The vast majority of organizations don't have that luxury. They've got to go get them in a more efficient manner. So you find a vendor partner that brings these elements to you. And the added advantage too of having a vendor third party partner is that you get the credibility and the independence to give you the objective truth. You don't have, for example, if you look at your finance department in an organization, you don't have your financial department auditing themselves. You have an outside group come in and stress test the numbers and make sure it meets the standards. So by having a third party vendor, not only are you able to do things, everything more cost effectively, secure the best and latest resources that are required, you're also getting that objectivity and independence to know that when you're being told your assets have achieved the level of compliance that has been determined to be necessary, that it can be validated. And the problem with the people who are doing the work internally in the organization, they're conflicted. And the bias is always going to lead towards them saying, or often lead them towards them saying, yeah, we've done this, we've achieved it. Yes, our agency has done it. We've done it in-house. We don't need to do it. And then the reality is 99% of the time, it hasn't been done. So those are the critical pieces at a high level that need to be factored in. And then of course, you want to give expression to this commitment. And that comes to expression in the famous accessibility statement that organizations should post on their sites that articulate this commitment in meaningful terms, not in a cut and paste boilerplate manner that doesn't correlate with what the person with a disability is truly experiencing on the site, but that genuinely speaks to what the organization is doing on their path to achieving and maintaining compliance. So you discuss these general do's and don'ts, and I'm curious now, of course, I don't want you to give away any company secrets or any company names or anything like that, but could you walk us through maybe a case study where someone came to you and said, hey, look, we, we need help, we need someone to look into our digital accessibility, and then take us through kind of what that process looks like in terms of working with that company as, as you mentioned, kind of that third party that's there to as much as anything, audit and determine areas of opportunity. Sure, yeah. When an organization comes to us now, there's kind of two scenarios. If it's a large, large organization, they've probably had experience with accessibility, and that's number one. Or maybe they've never done it before, but quite often when they're reaching out, it's because they've read that their competitor or themselves, they've received some sort of a legal action around accessibility or complaint, 
and they're saying like, whoa, I thought it was accessible or we've never done this before or our agency told us it was accessible or we had consultants in here and this stuff. And I guess we thought it was, and, and it, it all points to one thing, they're not accessible. So whatever the history is, it almost doesn't even matter. Like they're in a spot, they're in a pickle and they wanna do something about it. Maybe we have to open their eyes to the big picture, exactly as I've been explaining so far to the audience right now. But we got them to that point where they're like, they've got the buy-in and they go, okay, we get it, we need to do this. Let's move forward. What is the best way to do it? So that's where they take advantage. They leverage, in our case, our platform. What our platform consists of, it's all the elements that you require to address short-term if there's a legal action. It addresses that. It's got a communication piece for consumers that conveys what's going on in that regard. And you've got everything, all the resources that the development team requires to do the work that they're going to have to do over the time rising going forward, I mean, in perpetuity. And so the elements of that are automated testing pieces. About 30% of the types of errors that occur on a website can actually be determined through automated approaches, which makes it very efficient. So those testing tools are at their disposal. The platform and the program itself incorporates manual testing through we have expert testers many with different disabilities who use different technologies who provide that kind of feedback that i've explained earlier and this is all streamlined in a manner that it's fed it could be integrated in the case for the dev team it could be integrated right into the jira system if they're working on that or github and depending on the way the dev team works this information is translated at the pace and in the amounts that the dev team requires to ensure that the work they're doing conforms and meets the requirements that are necessitated going forward. The system, our platform also serves as a system of record, which in a legal context goes a long way to mitigating the legal dimensions that often surface in these situations. So it's this all in one platform that gives you all the pieces. There's an assistive technology piece that goes above and beyond the compliance requirement to ensure people who are paralyzed, for example, can access the site. There's a whole messaging piece that speaks to the broader disability community and burnishes the brand as being disability friendly. It's important to remember not everybody with a disability, fortunately, has trouble getting online. You could be the user of a motor scooter, but you've got full motor control, dexterity control. You have no problem getting on a site, but that doesn't mean this is not important for that individual either. Like people with disabilities want to apply for jobs at retailers. Retail is one of the biggest employers, if not the biggest employer in the whole economy. The disability community is overrepresented when it comes to the unemployment rules. So there are a variety of reasons that explain those factors. And we need to address that gap, redress that gap, close it by making it easier for people with disabilities to learn of and apply for positions in employers in all sectors. And so once again, it's very important that anything that a brand can do that can convey that they understand the needs of the disability community, whether it's as a consumer, as an employee, accommodating to build trust with this segment, the one in five individuals around the world who self-identify as having a disability. These are all very, very important elements that drive for a more inclusive, not just experience, but inclusive society.
You hit on something that I kind of wanted to wrap up on here because most of what we've discussed can obviously apply to a multitude of websites, but you talked about hiring and there was a really interesting blog post that your website also put up regarding the issues of accessibility as a potential employer, as you talked about, retailers use sites to hire just as much as they use sites to drive e-commerce traffic. What are some other considerations retailers should make regarding accessibility insofar as their hiring pages are concerned? Sure. The all too common equal opportunity statement is pervasive and it's out there. And people think that that sends a message to that, like, hey, you know, this is welcoming. The truth is everybody knows it's boilerplate. Most people aren't even reading it. It's lip service. It's not effective. If you want to attract candidates in this hyper-competitive world for talent, especially now, I mean, these are unprecedented times, then you've really got to convey and signal you truly are disability friendly. And we hear things like purpose. There's actual talking about stuff and there's doing stuff that has purpose, authenticity in conveying it. So when you're doing something like featuring assistive technology, when you're giving expression to your commitment to digital accessibility, that's authentic. That's real. That's a brand that's practicing what they're preaching versus people that are just blowing smoke and wind and and pretending to be doing these things. So it's all about building trust. And when you have that level of trust, that gives the applicant, the employee, the worker, the confidence and to say, like, that's the type of environment I want to work in. And it's another little message I want to send to the audience is, is this concept of friends and family, of people with disabilities. And it's that when you convey something, your brand's disability friendly, you're not just resonating with the disability community, but you're also resonating with a lot of the friends and family members too, because they have an emotional connection to disability. They have an affinity for it. And when they see that a brand is doing stuff and being inclusive and including their neighbor, their brother, their cousin or whatever, that resonates. That makes them feel good about your brand. And that, of course, drives loyalty. Well, this has been a great conversation, Simon. And once again, a subject that deserves to be pushed to the forefront rather than to the background. Thank you so much for taking the time on today's show to kind of discuss the ins and outs of digital accessibility. Oh, thank you for having me on. And for everybody who's stuck with this, thank you very much for listening. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Simon for joining us on the show, and you can just tell how enthusiastic, how passionate he is about the subject of accessibility. And it is something, honestly, we were talking a little bit off the air, that a lot of retailers have a blind spot because they're told or the developers are told or their dev team says that they are accessible across multiple disabilities in terms of their online and phone platforms. But many times they're not. And many times things get overlooked. And so ultimately something that retailers should be paying attention to, not just for sales, but as he mentioned, for the ability to attract new and diverse talent in the future. Well, in our Looking Ahead segment, I wanted to address a couple of different stories very briefly. The first affects the adult beverage section in retail stores as the energy drink maker Monster has agreed upon a deal to purchase Canarchy Craft Brewery Collective, LLC. Now, Canarchy 
creates a number of craft beer and hard seltzer brands. They were kind of a a co-op between these brands that were purchased in part by a private equity firm. You're looking at Cigar City, Oscar Blues, Deep Ellum, Perrin, Squatters, Wasatch, among others. They've got multiple brands there. And the reason I'm looking ahead to this story is exactly how Monster can leverage some of their in-store space that they've managed to get from retailers. And if you go into any retailer, Monster is very well represented. Again, their biggest shareholder, by the way, is Coca-Cola. So oftentimes featured alongside Coca-Cola products. You wonder if that's going to cross over to any of these craft beer brands. And the reason I bring this up is from a retail perspective, craft beer space is limited. You've got limited space in coolers. You've got limited space on end caps. And more of it has been taken by some of those hard seltzer brands. And more and more, you see a lot of the national craft brands, something like an Oscar Blues, for example, get edged out a little bit in favor of local brands. So I'm curious to see how this works, especially in terms of shelf space. This is, by the way, Monster's first acquisition as far as adult beverages are concerned. So again, you're looking at a scenario that may change up the shelf space dynamic in major retailers throughout the country. By the way, back in November, Monster was rumored to be in on a merger with Constellation, which is another adult beverage brand, but that deal fell through. So very much looking forward to what Canarchy and Monster Beverage can come up with as a joined company. Well, a company that's not going the opposite direction, splitting off at least just yet, is Office Depot, and they caught my attention this week as well for our looking ahead We had talked earlier on the show a couple of months ago about Office Depot's planned spinoff that would separate their direct-to-business portion of their enterprise from their retail stores business. The retail stores business still held in North America under the banners Office Depot and Office Max. That now is on hold because USR Parent Incorporated, who holds private equity firm Sycamore Partners, is also a parent company of Staples, has risen up and potentially put forth a deal that has drawn the attention of Office Depot's directors. Now, in this case, they're just postponing or delaying their plan for the company split. Apparently, this deal in November is for $1 billion in cash, and this is something that Leighton and I discussed on the show a couple of months ago, still looking at this situation as it is still developing, but the fact that they've delayed the split of Office Depot into two companies, at least for now, to see about the sale of their consumer business or their retail-facing business is, I think, an important facet of this deal. Ultimately, you have to look at not whether or not this deal would be the best for Office Depot shareholders necessarily, but Also, what the FTC would have to say about this, and something Leighton brought up on the show last year, is that the FTC has not smiled kindly upon many such mergers or acquisitions recently. And I think you just have to go back to the Walgreens deal with Rite Aid not that long ago. You saw that the FTC did not smile kindly upon that deal, and many regulators didn't either because it would give you just basically Walgreens, CVS, and then a number of independent operators in the United States. Well, in this case, you would have one single operator of office supply companies in the United States. So the question then becomes, 
is the competition posed by the likes of, say, Walmart and Target and other general merchandise retailers, Sam's Club, other warehouse clubs as well, enough to give this approval? And if not, you're basically just wasting a lot of money and a lot of time in this. So you kind of see why they might be delaying it just to talk things over a little bit, but continuing to keep an eye on this story as we look ahead to 2022. Well, that'll do it for us here on this week's version of the Retail Focus Podcast. Coming up, I already previewed it a little bit, but we'll be joined by Rod Sides. He is with Deloitte, and he'll be discussing Deloitte's new outlook, their retail outlook, where they interviewed a number of retail leaders, synthesized it into one publication, and we'll be discussing some of those outlook numbers on the show next week. Until then, we hope you have a great week ahead, and we'll talk to you seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.